Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has 20 years of law enforcement analysis experience. And he's currently in the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit, British Columbia in Canada. He is a self-proscribed gun nut and is here to talk about 3D printed guns and modified toy guns. Please welcome Winston Soriano. Winston, how are we doing? I'm doing well, Jason. How are you this morning? I am doing very well. Happy New Year. Did you have Happy a good New Year holiday? As well. I did. Yes. Very relaxing. Thank you. This is going to be a fascinating topic. I, I feel I for as probably as much as you are a gun enthusiast, I am on the opposite spectrum in that that I'm not. I don't know too much about guns. I didn't grow up with guns and I've only fired guns. I think uh, I can count on the number of two hands that I've ever fired guns in my life. So really looking forward to hearing some of the trends that you are analyzing in the gun investigation world. It's gonna be a really interesting segment, but let's first start with how you discovered the law enforcement analysis profession. Okay, Jason. Yeah, so I did a criminology degree in Simon Fraser University up in to be British Columbia. And the reason I got into criminology has always been interested in policing and the criminal justice system. I didn't necessarily want to be a police officer, but I thought perhaps, you know, I could work as a policy analyst with the Ministry of Attorney General or in that kind of capacity. So after I graduated from university with my criminology degree, one of my first jobs was I worked for a municipal police department and I was working in the records section. And, you know, basically there's a lot of data entry, retrieving files, et cetera. It was an entry level clerical position. And one day I, I got a request from a crime analyst within our department. And I was kind of intrigued. I'd never heard of this profession before. So this was roughly about 21 years ago. And so I got a hold of the crime analyst and then we started chatting. She wanted me to pull up some records for her and get some information. So we started chatting and, you know, I, I found out that her background was uh, she worked for uh, our Canada spy agency, actually, as a, an open source analyst. And then when she retired from that, she became a crime analyst. So I was really fascinated by the type of work she did, you know, looking at crime trends in the city in terms of like break and enters, auto thefts and you know, writing report, analyzing different types of information, working on investigations. So I was really, that really piqued my interest. And so that's pretty much how I got started. So I started chatting to her you know, on a weekly basis. And you know, about a year later, there's a, another agency that started up, which is the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit. And they were looking for a junior analyst. So I applied and fortunately I got the position and I've actually been with the organization ever since. So that's pretty much how I got my foot in the door in the analytical profession. And just to give you an example of how much it's grown, when I became a junior analyst you know, 20 years ago, there was maybe a dozen analysts in the whole province of British Columbia. And now there's over a hundred. So it's definitely an expanding field. And I know at this stage in my career, I now am mentoring and giving advice to prospective analysts. All right, good. And who was the analyst that you were working with? 
Her name was Terry Stewart. She's now retired as a crime analyst. But yeah, like I said, she was very helpful in, in getting me into that profession and giving me some advice. I'm so grateful that she took the time to talk to me and you know explain what she did. So yeah, she kind of steered me in the right direction. And here I am today. <laughs> Good. And the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit, that seems like a boilerplate. You could get get into just about anything in terms of that title, but what does that unit focus on? So our unit is the largest integrated task force in Canada. So we're based in British Columbia and we have about 400 employees. So our mandate is organized crime and high level street gangs. So this unit, that is its sole mandate is to tackle organized crime groups and high level street gangs so you know it encompass like the unit itself it encompasses outlaw motorcycle gangs asian organized crime we have illegal gaming team that looks at organized crime involvement in gaming and gambling so it's a yeah like you said it's an umbrella organization we, we looked at different types of offenses such as drug trafficking illegal gaming like i mentioned firearms trafficking And our unit is comprised of police officers from different agencies, including the RCMP, which is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the the federal and federal police force in Canada. And we also have civilian members for which I am a civilian analyst. So yeah, so this unit's been around for over 20 years and we have one in British Columbia and there's other units across the country. But I I would like to say it's similar to, you know, some of your joint task forces there in the U.S. You know, I did a lot of work in the beginning of my career with the DEA and ICE because I worked on a lot of cross-border drug smuggling files. And as recently now, because I'm with the firearms trafficking team, I do a lot of work with the HSI, Homeland Security Investigations, and obviously the ATF. So British Columbia, just, and I probably should have looked this up before I talked to you, but how big of area is British Columbia? In terms of geographic size, I want to say, you know, it's similar, I think, to California or or perhaps Washington and and Oregon combined. Uh, And for those who don't know where we are geographically, we're just uh, north of the Washington state. So Seattle up in western U.S. there is about a three hour, two and a half hour drive from Vancouver. So, uh, yeah, when you think of Seattle, you can think of Vancouver. So, uh, like, like, like Seattle, it rains a lot up here. <laughs> yeah, so it's rainy and cloudy all the time, right? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> we only get two months of good weather. That's in July and August. And if we're lucky, it may extend into September. But, yeah, like I said, Vancouver and Seattle have a lot in common. And the ra- cloudy, rainy weather is one of them. <laughs> yeah. So, then, you know, as you come in, you're a junior analyst. You know, how has your role grown from the first days you walked into the door until now? Well, I actually, so as a junior analyst, I was fortunate enough to have a mentor. So, you know, for any aspiring analysts out there, if you join a unit, I don't know what it is now, but I am actually mentoring one of our junior analysts now. But when I first became a junior analyst, I was working in the Asian organized crime portfolio and the senior analyst that I was that was mentoring me, his name is Tony Tong. He was a former Hong Kong police officer. And after the changeover from Hong Kong to China in 1997, I believe, he immigrated to Canada and was able to get a job as a law enforcement intelligence analyst. So uh, I learned a lot from him. So in the beginning, you know, it's basically getting my feet wet. So, you know, I did a lot of data entry and and simple queries, you know, if you can check. 
I would get requests from you know police officers or members of the team, you know, can you query this person on this database or that database? And at the same time, Tony was, like I said, my mentor, and he was kind of giving me tips and advice, and I would kind of shadow him. And so, yeah, so from the very first day, I was a junior analyst, and after about two two years, I graduated. So Tony and myself, we were attached to the Asian Organized Crime Team. And after a couple of years on that team, I was a senior analyst on another team. So I pretty much advanced that way. And throughout my career, I've worked on different sections, like Asian Organized Crime, Outlaw Motorcycle Groups, and now with the Illegal Firearms Team. But uh, yeah, no, it's been a learning experience. I'm still learning. So learning doesn't stop. As we all know, technology changes. I remember when I first started in, in 2002, I believe Tony was still going through hard copies of Excel spreadsheets. At the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I was like, there's got to be a better way to do this. And then obviously then technology changed and we were able to get the Excel spreadsheets rather than like the hard copies. And I remember him doing that. I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know how you're able to do that. But this guy had an amazing memory and able to analyze that information. But yeah, like I said, it is a learning process and I'm still passionate about this job 20 years later. And, you know, it's like, you know, I I know it seems kind of cliche, but it is really my dream job. You know, I know you'd asked me how I got into law enforcement analysis, but ever since I was a kid, I've always been interested in reading books on organized crime, on the mafia, you know, Asian organized crime groups, groups. So I've always had that interest. And when I had this position to work with the Combined Forces Unit as an intelligence analyst, I was in my in my realm there. In your department, to move from junior to senior analyst, it just quickly, how does that process work? Is that based on time? Is it a promotion? Is it a test or something that you have to take? Yeah, so right now, Jason, we have a program at our unit where when a junior analyst comes in, they're assigned a mentor. And so I have a junior analyst working with me in our firearms team, and she has to fulfill certain tasks and reports. So it's a progression. So, you know, for example, a basic report, can you do a target profile or a target background on a subject? You know, like what, you know, it gives her the ability to research databases to pull out information that's pertinent, you know, to obtain photos of our target, you know, any open source information. So that would probably be one of the first steps is to do a target background on a subject. And then from there, perhaps, you know, we would get phone records like a TDR, we call them transmission data recorder. I think it's very similar to your pen link, I believe in the US, where mm-hmm. we would get live phone records. So then, you know, then she would start looking at that and analyzing information that way and using different functions in Excel, like pivot tables to identify frequency of calls. And then perhaps, you know, we also get surveillance reports. She would be analyzing that. And then, you know, and then it would graduate to, say, doing another, doing a verbal presentation, a, a debrief on an investigation, just to build up on your presentation skills. And then it would be like further down the road of an investigation, it would be more advanced analysis. You know, you would get surveillance reports, the phone records, if we have a wiretap investigation, tie all that in together and write a lengthy report. So she, the junior analyst we have now, she's been with us for about six months. And so it is a progression. It's not necessarily time per se, but, you know, myself and our supervisor would look over her work and, you know, would give feedback. So after certain, when she reached, I, I would say maybe in a couple of years, like after she reaches all these milestones that we've set out, 
then she could potentially graduate from a junior to a senior analyst. Excellent. I yeah. really like that there's this established path for analysts to move up. And it's certainly getting better, but there's still a lot of police departments in the U.S. where there is just not this established path for analysts to move up. And so it's really good to see that you have this mentorship program, you have this established set of criteria for your mentee to be able to aspire to. Oh, yeah. No, it's great. Like I said, when I started, you know, 20 years ago, it was an informal relationship between me and the senior analysts. But, you know, fortunately, we got along really well and, you know, became a really close friend and just guided me. And now you're right now, you know, with, with the field growing in Canada and there's a lot of aspiring analysts who want to get into the program. And if they're fortunate enough to join a police agency, yes, it gives them you know, the ability to progress through their career and, you know, to expand on their skills and abilities. So, yes, it is it is a good program that we have. And, and the RCMP, which is the federal police force, they have an established program as well. So we actually borrowed our program from them because they've had it in place for a while now. But I think it's a great idea that yeah. there is an established process. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with using what works. Yeah, definitely. Right. Why, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. That's right. <laughs> All right. So this brings us to your analyst badge stories. And for those that may be new to the show, the analyst badge story is the career-defining case or project that analyst works. And you have more than one, which is always welcomed on this show. And let's just start with the, the earliest one. And it's, is it Project Pavid? Yes, that's right. Pavid. Yes, that's okay. right. The reason for that name is, unfortunately, in the RCMP world, the, the project names are given in alphabetical order. And there's no rhyme or reason. It has nothing to do with the project itself. <laughs> yeah, so, it's like uh, a hurricane? Yeah, exactly. like the how they name so, so, so at that time we were going through the p the p words and this is the one we were getting from ottawa <laughs> but so so yeah like i said the, the name pavid i'm not even sure what it means but it has nothing to do with the investigation i worked on so this is an investigation i worked on i guess three years into my career and it's been one of my career defining moments and because it, it was such an unusual investigation so, so basically how it started is a colleague of mine with Canada Border Services, uh, Chris Gahan, a close friend of mine, I remember he came to our office one day, and, and we do a lot of work, Combined Forces Unit, with a lot of other law enforcement agencies, including Canada Border Services, which is similar to U.S. Customs or HSI. And anyway, so Chris came over to my desk one day, and he was showing me these overhead aerial photos of a property right near the U.S.-Canada border. So it would be the B.C.-Washington state border. And he was showing me these aerial photos and he was telling me, he's like, Winston, I think they're building a tunnel from the Canadian side of the border to the U.S. side. And I was like, no, there's no way. And he said, you know, he'd been following this subject that he previously investigated years ago for drug trafficking onto this property. And he noticed that, uh, you know, construction equipment was going onto this Quonset hut on the property, which is basically a little single detached home in this, you know, metal Quonset hut. And, you know, he would see dirt coming out and so he was, and I remember when he first brought it up, I said, there's no way. And back in 2005, one of our big problems in, in BC was uh, grown marijuana, which was being exported to the US, which we were reaching really high prices. So I thought it, initially that it was an underground marijuana bunker. 
And, and so Chris presented it to my boss and my boss was of the same opinion. He's like, there's no way they're building a tunnel because we'd only heard of tunnels across the U.S.-Mexico border, never Canada-U.S. So my boss, you know, didn't believe Chris, but kudos to him. He was very persistent. And so finally, my boss decided, OK, tell you what, Chris, we're going to get a geologist to use a ground penetrating radar on the property. We'll do it covertly to see if there's a void in the ground, you know, to see if there's something there. And so, you know, we got this geologist to come in and lo and behold, he hit on a large void in the dirt, in the earth. So with that, we were able to get grounds to execute a covert general warrant. And I still remember this day. And so that night when we got it approved, we had our investigators go into the Quonset hut, you know, in the middle of the night. And one of them had a GoPro camera on his on his vest. And so he goes into the Quonset hut and he's kind of looking around and, you know, it just looks like a regular, you know, Quonset hut with like farm machinery in there and construction tools and that. But anyways, he pans his camera down to this big sheet of metal on the floor. So he kind of lifts it up and he looks down and there's like a a ladder down to the bottom of this void and he climbs down the ladder and lo and behold there is a tunnel and it was all framed up and so you know fast forward we started investigating and you know we advised the americans at the dea at the time hey we found this tunnel you know we suspect it's being used to smuggle drugs from canada to the u.s and you know vice versa so we started working with the americans and we were able to get phone numbers for our subjects so i was monitoring their tdrs and i believe we had a vehicle tracker on their vehicle so i was and then we also had a wiretap investigation so i was analyzing all this information to try and identify other associates and so i guess after about a six-month investigation it was decided you know we let a couple of shipments go through and, and the DA was able to, you know, arrest these guys and seize the drugs in Seattle. And I guess a decision was made to shut the tunnel down because there, there was a concern that, you know, perhaps, you know, terrorists or other weapons would be funneling down into the U.S. and similar to Canada. So the decision was made. And I still remember the day before they shut it down, myself and my colleague Chris, we went down to the U.S. side and we actually got to go into the house where the, the U.S. side of the tunnel was built, and I was able to go into the tunnel. I was very claustrophobic, but it, it was pretty amazing. It was about, you know, I'm, I'm five seven, so it was about, yeah, about, yeah, about, about my height. I could definitely stand up in it, and yeah, it was literally, and this tunnel was, literally went under this road, Zero Avenue, it's called. Uh, it's about, and it was literally like perhaps 100 meters from the U.S. Canada Customs Station. So that was a very career-defining uh, experience. So myself and my team colleagues, we both, we all got certificates from the U.S. DEA to acknowledge our participation in this investigation. And from that day on, I've never heard or investigated any other tunnel along the Canada-U.S. border. So I'm sure there are, but it was quite unique. And so, like I said, even now I hear about tunnels along the Mexican-U.S. border, but never along the Canada, U.S. So that was definitely a career-defining investigation for me. It was very successful. We arrested three suspects. They actually spent it. They all three got convicted, and they actually spent all their time in the U.S. So that, that was very fortunate. I tell you, that was very definitely a career-defining moment for me. Yeah. 
So how long was this tunnel? I believe it was about 300 yards. 300, it wasn't very long. Literally, it was a house on the U.S. side of the property, and directly across it was another home on the Canadian side. And it was literally just under the, the main road. It's a two-lane road that separates Canada and the U.S. And I didn't walk the whole length of the tunnel. Like I said, I was getting claustrophobic. <laughs> so <laughs> I went back up. But yeah, like I said, it, it, and I remember when some of the guys I work with, they have construction experience and they were telling me, I'm like, Winston, if the bad guys were using their skills, they would do really well in the construction industry <laughs> as opposed to building an illegal tunnel, right? So yeah, like I said, it, it was hurt anything of sense. And every time I, I go through that border at that port of entry, I always think about that tunnel. Oh, man. Every time I think of some of the things, and this can be either illegal behavior or even in the business world, where someone spends either exorbitant amount of time, money, or resources on a particular thing, and I'm like, man, what return were they expecting from this? And it must be worthwhile to do all that, uh, oh, yeah, all yeah, that man. effort just just to be able to run those back and forth between us and canada yeah yeah exactly yeah like i said i guess at the time like the main product that the canada or british columbia was involved in was bc grown marijuana and that was being and we we did corroborate that because we let a couple of loads go through and then you know fortunately the americans took it off but we never the only one thing that i have a regret is we didn't identify the financier of this operation because you're right uh, Jason, I'm sure it costs a lot of money to build this thing, and we only arrested the guys who were doing the dirty work, so to speak. Oh, man. Yeah. So, ah, interesting. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, that gave you some momentum. Let's move on to your other story, and you, you must have just waited until the peas came up in the project because i see that this next one is 2008 and it's pistology that's right yeah i guess within that three-year span they were still on the peas <laughs> so yeah so pistology so this was another career defining investigation and i gotta say like these two investigations that i worked on it was a, a jfo with the dea kudos to the dea we had we've had a great relationship with them and you know i i, I speak so highly of that agency because of the investigations we worked on with them and this project pistology was another investigation and it stemmed from a dea investigation in, in los angeles where they arrested somebody who provided information to the dea that he was quite you know technologically gifted and the subject was able to set up a BlackBerry server. So I know we don't use Blackberries too much now, but back then it was fairly common. And so what this subject did is he set up his own BlackBerry server. I, I guess it was, I believe it was, it was ba physically based in LA, but I think it was being used in Panama there. And so what he did is he set up this BlackBerry server and what, so he was a cooperating agent with the DEA, and they started handing out these blackberries to bad guys. And, and so they started investigation that way, and they were able, the DEA at the time, were able to, to receive the blackberry messages, BBMs, in live time, which was very unusual. Even then, we can't do that. So back then, because, you know, they had a, a server, they could literally see the messages coming across between people who are using their Blackberries. 
And so the DA identified, hey, you know what, there's some Canadians on here. It looks like, you know, they're getting cocaine from the U.S. and shipping it up to Canada. So we were notified by the DEA. And so we started doing a parallel investigation in Canada. And so what we ended up doing is we actually physically brought the server because I, I guess they had taken down their their guys. So we used their server in the L.A. and brought it up to Vancouver and then we started handing out these blackberries through an undercover operation to bad guys up here in Canada and also intercepting the ones that the U.S. were intercepting up here in Canada. So the name of the server was Goosebomb. That was the name of it. And, <laughs> and literally, I still remember this, Jason. So we have a wiretap room. And when we right now, when we have wiretap investigations, literally, you know, we have an intercept monitor sitting at their desks and listening to calls. And on their screen, they're going to see the calls. But I remember when we set up for this investigation, the intercept monitors had monitors in front of their screen and they were not listening to the calls. They were reading the messages. Mm -hmm. And so, like I said, you know, fast forward on that investigation. I remember this. It was I believe it was 2009, December 24th. So Christmas Eve, we intercepted a shipment of cocaine coming out from the U.S. to Canada at the Canada-U.S. border. 100 kilograms of cocaine, which at the time was unheard of. And two days later, we got information that another shipment was coming up, and that was 102 two kilograms of cocaine. So that was worth in the tens of thousands of dollars, if not millions. And so those were very good seizures, and we were able to take down an organized crime group in Canada and another one in the U.S. as a result of this investigation. And so since that time, we were not able to, you know, follow up on our success and, you know, do subsequent investigation. But that was another groundbreaking investigation for uh, for our unit to set up our own server and, you know, basically hand them out to bad guys. And they had no knowledge that we were reading all their messages. So, so yeah, those were, the, like I said, two of the basically career-defining investigations that I've personally worked on. And again, like I said, you know, we, we got a certificate myself and the rest of my team as a basis of that investigation. We, we were recognized for our work because it was challenging, but it was very worthwhile. Yeah, again, I like the recognition. So Goosebomb, does that mean anything or you just happened to hit the G's at that particular point? <laughs> well, it's funny, actually, that was the name that the DEA gave the name of the server was Goosebomb. Yeah. I guess they could give it different names down there. So so again, Goosebomb has nothing to do with the investigation. But yeah, so that, that's uh, that's pretty much the name of the server that the DEA yeah. provided. It's fascinating that you physically moved the server and and how that would have impacted i mean somebody in the know that would have been using that server would have been able to identify that that server had changed locations but obviously in in your case nobody that was using that server realized that it was now coming out of canada and not california Exactly. So how it was set up, Jason, is that, yeah, physically the server was in L.A. at the time, but for all intents and purposes, it was being transmitted out of Panama. And oh, the same God. thing, when we physically moved it from L.A. to Canada, for all intents and purposes, all the users knew that it was being transmitted out of Panama. So huh. so that was kind of, I, I guess, a, a failsafe so that they wouldn't... Yeah determined that, hey, it's in the law enforcement's hands, you know, so. It's funny, until you mentioned BlackBerry, I guess I didn't realize that Blackberries aren't around anymore. And 
it's it's kind of a shocking moment because blackberries were everywhere 15 years ago. Oh, exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I'm thinking President Obama. I believe had, he was a BlackBerry user, and the Secret Service had to do something special to, so he could have a BlackBerry. I remember that. I might have to look that up afterwards to see when they actually faded away. But yeah, BlackBerry is actually a Canadian company, a research in motion that invented it. And mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. Like all the government agencies up in mm-hmm. Canada were using Blackberries because the the app. It's an encrypted application, the BBM, mm-hmm. BlackBerry Messenger. And you're right, it was quite common. And yeah, now we're like, you know, using different phones now. But uh, yeah, Blackberries were everywhere back then. And then now they've mm-hmm. just kind of faded into obscurity. What's going on, analysts? My name is Manny San Pedro. I'm the technology director for the IACA. And here is my public service announcement for analysts. Don't become overly reliant on Excel. Use it to analyze and break down your data. It's a fantastic tool. Fantastic. And it's free as part of the Microsoft Office offering. But don't use it as a database. Use a database as a database. Connect to the database with Excel. And then use it for your pivoting, for all your slicing and dicing, even developing your dashboard. But again, don't use Excel for everything because it may not be the best tool for you. Hi, I'm John Ng. I'm a crime analyst with the Saskatoon Police Service. A public service announcement that I have is for, especially for junior analysts, but also senior analysts, just be true to yourself and recognize that the police culture that you're in shouldn't necessarily shape who you are, but you have something to bring towards your service as a benefit as well. Let's talk about another story that's more recent now. And so this gets into your love of guns and your investigation of guns. And you recently spoke at Propol's 3D printed weapons conference. So yeah, 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 that's right. Let's talk about that. Yeah, actually. So just to give you a bit of my background, like my ethnic background, I'm actually born in the Philippines, uh, Jason. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know, but the Philippines has a very extensive gun culture similar to the U.S. Mm -hmm. I I mean, mind you, Philippines was an American colony for about 50 years. So, yeah, like, you know, I have always grown up around guns and throughout my career, I'd never worked specifically on firearms. So three years ago, I joined the firearms investigative team and I felt like I was in my element. I was able to combine my hobby and passion with my work. And so a couple of years ago, you know, especially when COVID hit, I was, you know, I think a lot of us were quarantined or I, I know I was working from home for about a year when COVID first hit in March of 2020. And so I was doing a lot of research from home and reaching out and networking. And yeah, so I was doing some research on illegal firearms and I got a hold of this gentleman from Interpol with their farm section. So we started chatting and, you know, I, I was sending him reports I had been doing on illegal farms in Canada, etc. But then in March of this year, I got an email from him and, and uh, basically talking about Europol, which is a European equivalent of Interpol, just with the European Union there, that they were planning to have a 3D printed farms conference because it has just been kind of a trend that was just starting to get bigger. In Canada itself, I've been working on 3D printed farms since 2019. And, but in, in 
Europe, I believe as of earlier this year, they've had perhaps three or four investigations in the whole continent. And I personally worked on three 3D farms investigations personally. So anyway, so based on that email, they had invited me to attend this conference in, in The Hague, which was in May of this year. And it was a three-day conference and they were bringing in law enforcement agencies from Europe and academics as well to study you know, the impact of 3D printed firearms, look at the legislation they could implement to address it, look at other agencies, what they've come across. So uh, based on my background and the experience I had with 3D printed firearms, I was fortunately invited to present at the conference. So I was able to go to Europe for the first time in my life. I'd never been there. So I went to The Hague in the Netherlands and Europol had sponsored the conference and I was able to speak. I believe we had about 200 attendees and it was a great conference. You know, everyone was sharing information they had. And I was actually the only Canadian who presented. And I, I met some uh, ATF cohorts. But yeah, it's funny. When I first got invited to the conference, I was like, well, I'm from Canada. And they're like, no, 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 that doesn't matter, you know, because you've got this 3D printed firearms <laughs> investigation. I'm like, okay. And so I, I said, oh, well, you know, I can only speak to what's happening in Canada that I personally worked on. They're like, well, no, no, that's what we want. So, so yeah, I think I got some very good reviews of that. and. You know, the director of Europol, the weapons and explosives, he was fairly happy with my presentation. And I got other kudos from other people I met from different agencies throughout Europe and was able to do a lot of networking. And so, yeah, so like I said, that was, I know initially when I was invited to that conference, I was telling manager about it and he was like, yeah, yeah, you know, Winston, you should definitely go, you know. And he said, but, you know, we have to bring it up with, you know, senior management and, so senior management gave me the go ahead and I remember coming back from the trip and, you know, the, the chief of our agencies, oh, Winston, you know, I bumped into him in the hallway. He's like, oh, hey, Winston, how was the conference? I said, oh, it was great, sir. You know, I got to meet so many people. And I said, I brought, you know, a lot of coins, challenge coins, patches, you know, swag from our unit. I said, sir, if nobody knew about combined forces unit before I got there, <laughs> all of Europe definitely knows now because that's all I talked about. And so actually they're planning to have another follow-up conference this year, May or June. So we'll see if I get invited to that one. But uh, yeah, like I said, it was a very career-defining experience to be only Canadian to present at that conference and to represent Canada, really, in terms of deprinted firearms. So let's go into the 3D print process a little bit, because I'm trying to get a, a general understanding of what it is and what it is not. And because I think of 3D printing, I, I think of this process of building this little plastic figurine or this piece of plastic that is going to be used very specifically around the house or the office and, or whatnot. So I just wanted to get a general understanding. When we say 3D gun, is is the entire gun made out of the 3D print material or is it only some? Okay, actually, that's a good question, Jason. So the farms are coming across now, we consider them hybrid 3D. So the whole gun itself is not 3D printed. And it's not made of polymer plastic, which is generally the material that's used to 3D print, like you said, figurines. So just to give you a bit of a background on 3D printed firearms, in 2012, Cody Wilson, a gentleman from the U.S., he actually made the first 3D printed firearm, which was a single shot pistol. And it was com completely made of polymer plastic, except for, the, I believe, the firing pin and some screws. And... 
it wasn't very durable, but what he did is he published the digital blueprints for this 3D printed farm on the internet online. So that was in 2012, roughly. So 3D printed farms have been around for the last 10 years now. And from there it's evolved. And you know, to your point about the figurines and that, you're right, 3D printers have obviously other uses than just 3D printed firearms. And it's widely used, you're right, to create figurines. And I think 3D printers themselves became more widely known during COVID because I'm sure people have heard stories of, you know, protective equipment, face masks, etc., being manufactured using 3D printers. So that became more well known. And from there, I think, you know, because this is my theory, at least because of the COVID lockdown, quarantine, people were at home and, you know, people are on the internet surfing and, you know, perhaps, you know, people are like, hey, you know, there's all these 3D printed firearm blueprints online. Perhaps, you know, I could try and build one just for curiosity's sake. So, you know, like I said, these blueprints and schematics are widely available online. They're not restricted at all. The 3D printers themselves, you can get one for as low as $200 US and as high as up to $10,000 if you want really high quality. And But yeah, so the 3D printed firearms. So right now what we're seeing is, as I mentioned, hybrid. So I'll, I'll use an example of a Glock semi-auto pistol, which I'm fairly sure people are familiar with. So th this is the common firearm we're seeing in Canada is the hybrid Glock pistol. So when you think of a, a Glock pistol, there's two parts, main parts to it. There's the frame, which has the grip and the, the trigger housing. So that itself is generally made of 3D printed polymer plastic. So you can get those schematics online. You can download it to your printer and your computer. And basically it gives the instructions to the 3D printer to literally make this frame. And so once that frame is created, right now you do still need the conventional, I would call it the upper receiver, which contains the barrel, the slide. That has to be all metal because it bears the pressure of, of the fire of firing the, the firearm. So that has to be metal. So when we consider when we think of 3D firearms, the whole firearm isn't 3D printed. It's generally the lower half, the frame, say, or the lower receiver. There are 3D printed firearms are completely made of polymer plastic, but they're not very reliable. But there is one called T9, which is mainly built of 3D polymer plastic, but there's also metal parts in it as well. So right now, most of the firearms that I'm seeing and that are being made are considered hybrid because until the technology advances where 3D printers can print like metal frames and receivers, the whole firearm in, in metal then it's going to continue to be a hybrid 3D polymer frame and firearm, yeah. sorry. Yeah, and so FGC, I have to smile when I <laughs> see what that stands for, F-gun control. But you mentioned that you can get a 3D printer for as low as $200. And then the material, the polymer to make these parts to the gun how expensive are those roughly oh they're inexpensive too uh, jason like say for a spool of polymer plastic you're paying maybe 20 dollars, 15 dollars us for a spool and okay. like i said with 3d printed firearms it's so the ability to print these are so easy now because of the cost of printers and the supplies and the availability availability of the digital blueprints that's what mm -hmm. makes it so appealing to you know those who are hobbyists who are 
generally interested or curious if they can build these things. But on the other side, you have the criminal underworld who are taking advantage of these 3D printed farms and making them themselves or contracting other, people's to, other people to make them and then in turn trafficking these firearms. I probably watch too much movies and TV, but I'm just thinking, you know, in terms of somebody that's up to no good that would want something like this is you're going through metal detection, you know, they're they're looking for that shape of the gun, right? The, 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 the whole gun itself. But with this, this might not come up on an x-ray or anything else, at least not the shape that they're looking for. Is that what well, you found as well? Yeah, so Jason, in terms of like airport security and the scanners at the airports, so if you have just the 3D frame itself, so there's no metal, it's just plastic, that's going to get through the metal detector. I don't believe we, there's actually, speaking of that, that's a good question. There's actually a company that is currently marketing and they're doing testing at different airports in North America. I know they're doing one in Toronto airport where they're testing, it's called Hexwave. And what it is, it's a it's a unique scanner which detects the shape of the item. So it's it's uh, they're testing it there, and so this would then be a game changer in terms of identifying 3D printed firearms. Because right now, with 3D printed frames, like I said, they're made of plastic. It's going to get through a metal detector. But with this new type of scanner, a 3D hex wave scanner it's gonna detect the shape of the pistol or the firearm. So then it would be more difficult to get that through. But the other big point with these 3D firearms is they're considered ghost guns. And for those who are not familiar with the term, it basically means a firearm that is not traceable. So for a 3D firearm, there's no serial numbers on it. So you can't trace it as compared to a conventional firearm when they're manufactured, they all have serial numbers, and there's usually some kind of markings on it, say, you know, Smith & Wesson or Glock. But with the 3D printed firearms, there's nothing to identify that firearm. So that's another thing that makes it appealing is that they are literally untraceable. And that's why they fall under the category of ghost guns, because when these guns are used and they're found somewhere, there's no way you can track who made that gun or who it came from. So that's another big advantage, I guess, for criminals to go down this route of 3D printed firearms. Hmm. And then the cases that you came across, how did the department discover these weapons? Okay, actually, I'll speak about the first 3D firearms mm -hmm. investigation I worked on. And so this was a joint investigation with our Canada Border Services. And so we have an intelligence analyst actually that works alongside myself. And she was with Canada Border Services. She's retired now, Sherry Olson's her name. And she provided information to our unit that they identified a subject who was importing parts from the US into Canada through the mail carrier. And so she did some background checks on the subject who's receiving this material and found out, oh, lo and behold, he's prohibited from owning firearms and he has no firearms license. So even though technically importing these parts, you don't require a firearms license, it kind of raised a red flag. Well, why would this person who's got a lengthy criminal record, you know, for drug trafficking fraud, he has no firearms license, he's actually prohibited from owning firearms, why is he importing these firearm parts from the U.S.? and also from other Canadian farms retailers. So, you know, we started an investigation on this subject, you know, did surveillance, you know, traditional investigative techniques. And we found out he was purchasing a suppressor 
from China, which is a prohibited item, a silencer, another name for it. And so what we did is we identified when that shipment was coming in and we conducted what's called a controlled delivery. So that item was delivered to the subject and we also had a search warrant in place as soon as he accepted that item. So as a result of the search warrant, the investigators went into the home and basically discovered a farms manufacturing facility. And so this was the first time I came across a 3D printed firearm. So this subject had purchased a 3D printer online. I believe it was 1200 Canadian at the time. And it was sitting in his home and he had examples of 3D printed Glock frames. And then he had completed farm pistols with the frame and then the conventional upper receivers. And he had conventional firearms in his home as well. And I remember going through the printer. So in his printer, he actually had a USB card in there, a memory stick. So I, my one of my jobs was to analyze information on there. And it was a treasure trove of evidence because he basically had files that he had downloaded from the internet on how to build these guns. And, and actually, the funny thing is too, we, we seized his phone at the time. And he actually took a video on his cell phone of his printer printing a 3D printed firearm. And he took a video of it and we were able to determine, yeah, that is his printer. And that background is in his home. So we use that as great evidence. So, and then- I so like when they of, make it easy. Exactly, exactly, Jason. Like I said, that was like, that was a gimme. It's like, oh, thank you. You know, thank you for recording that video, you know, that uh, of your 3D printer in action and, you know, that it's actually in the process of building this frame. So yeah, actually, so for the three, as I mentioned, the three farms investigations I've worked on, which involve 3D printers, they have come from our Canada Border Services Agency. And like I said, they, they have measures in place where they can identify certain products that are coming into the country. And right now that the main items are, yeah, if they're being purchased from farms retailers in the U.S. or you know, or overseas. Generally, U.S. you know has a large farms market, as you know. But uh, yeah, so that's pretty much how they've come in, and also also from other conventional means of getting information. You know, from confidential informers or you know other police departments, etc. That's interesting. So, and and we're gonna put some pictures of some examples of these weapons uh, in the show notes. So I, I highly recommend. You take a look at what's being produced. So since the the 3D printed part is not the actual barrel, that means though that the shell casings that these these weapons would fire, they still could have, you can still run the shell casing match to compare that the shell casings that were shot with the 3D printed one that would match the one that maybe it was the originally part of the gun. That's correct. Yeah, that's a good point, Jason. So if we, so yeah, I guess I'll talk about an example here. So for example, there's a shooting and yeah, a shell casing is retrieved and they're trying to identify where that casing, which firearm that casing came from. So they would run it through the ballistics system. It's called IBIS, I believe, Integrated Ballistics Information System. And if that 3D printed firearm is in the possession of law enforcement, then they could do a test fire on that gun, would put the information on the shell casing into the system and they could match it that way. But if they have the shell casing itself and they have no way to identify where that firearm came from, because like I said, the 3D 
printed firearm. The barrels may be serialized, a lot aren't serialized, so there's no way to track the barrels. So really the only way to link a shooting scene to the firearm is if the firearm itself is seized and it's in the possession of law enforcement, as opposed to a traditional firearm where you can determine, you know, there's been examples where, you know, the same firearm was used in multiple shootings because the casing all matched together. And so you know those are coming from the same firearm, even though the firearm has never been recovered, you know it's linked to the same firearm. Whereas opposed to a 3D printed firearm, like I said, it's not serialized, and that makes it difficult to link mm -hmm. shell casings to that firearm. Yeah. So you mentioned that he recorded a video. Approximately how long did it take for him to print out that part of the <laughs> weapon? Okay, so the frame itself, it is a lengthy process. It's about mm -hmm. uh, 12 to 13 hours to print like a okay. Glock pistol frame uh, mm -hmm. because it's building up layers of frame itself. So it is a lengthy process, but, you know, you can literally turn it on, go to bed, <laughs> and the next morning or later that day, it's completed. So it's not necessarily something you have to keep an eye out for. I'm sure, you know, when you do your first test runs that, you know, it'd probably be important to, to you know, make sure it's all printing properly, etc. But yeah, approximately, Jason, about 12 to 13 hours to print the actual frame because it builds layer upon layer. But as technology goes, that is going to get faster and faster. Oh, definitely. That's just like every, you know, everything progresses that way. So it may be 12 hours today, but in two or three years, it could be half that. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Like I said, you know, with the cost of printers nowadays, the advances in what you can print and the availability of these files, you know, it's, it's definitely going to advance. I know in the U.S., I'm not sure if it's that big a problem yet, but mm -hmm. uh, actually one thing I wanted to discuss, Jason, is uh, for your American audience, is I know it's a big issue we have up here in Canada, and from my speaking to my ATF colleagues, it's also becoming a big problem in the U.S., are the auto switches or the auto sears. Mm -hmm. So these are used specifically with Glock pistols, and they're like little devices that go on the back of a receiver of a slide, and what it does is it converts the Glock pistol from semi-auto to full automatic. And I know that's a growing problem in Canada and as well as the U.S. And initially, they were made of metal and they were being produced overseas. You know, I think you could get them off like Alibaba or Wish, these kind of online websites. But now, tying it into 3D printers, we're starting to see these auto sears being 3D printed. Mm. And so that's another big problem, again, too, because, you know, when law enforcement, basically, when they're going into these, you know, search warrants or coming across these firearms, when they're being converted to full auto, and I know you could get extended magazines for these Glock pistols, up to 30 rounds. And if you have one of those auto sears on this pistol, those 30 rounds are coming out of that barrel within seconds. And that is a big public safety issue, both for police and for the general public. So, yeah, because I know that's one of the photos I, I provided to you is the auto sear. So I wanted to mention that, too, for for your audience. Yeah, that's scary stuff there, because if, if, you know, the, you just think of the size of a pistol versus the size of maybe a bigger machine gun or automated semi-automatic rifle, those things, I mean, that, when you see that little pistol, you might be thinking that, oh, it can only shoot so fast, but obviously they're modifying it so it can, you know, produce more shots in a shorter period of time. 
Oh, exactly. Like you said, because of the size of the pistol, it's easily concealed. Uh, so it makes it difficult to, yeah, you're right. You're not going to be carrying like a big machine gun out in public, but mm-hmm. uh, if the police are not aware of that, they potentially, you know, they're going to be facing more firepower than what they're used to. So that's why these auto sears are becoming a very dangerous item out there. Yeah. And so another trend that you've come across is converting airsoft guns and my son has an airsoft gun so what do i have to be worried that he may be doing to his airsoft gun well yeah so air converted airsoft guns they're more of a because our laws in canada are stricter and as opposed to the u.s so we've seen and i've personally seen this is converted airsoft pistols so what the bad guys are doing up here in canada especially in british columbia that i've seen is there is generally the, the the pistols the airsoft pistols so what they're doing is they're buying the airsoft frame so the bottom half of the pistol which is an airsoft you see kilo whiskey charlie that is a very well-known airsoft brand of, of weapon so what they're doing is they're buying these kwc airsoft pistol frames they look like the 1911 type model which the americans were using in world war ii mainly the american army there and what they're doing is then they're buying these 22 caliber conversion kits. So these are the upper receivers or the slides. And those are being made by a company called German Sport Guns, GSG, which we've seen up here in Canada. And just by doing some minor modifications on the frame of the airsoft pistol, they're able to combine the 22 caliber slide to this frame and it acts as a functioning 22 caliber pistol. Now, 22 caliber, it's a fairly small round, but it still could kill you. Yeah, these guys are being fairly creative. And, and again, the thing is, too, with these converted airsoft pistols, you can find a video on how to do it online, on YouTube. It's so widely available. And and I guess that's the main issue. You know, you can't, you know, it's impossible to remove all this information from the internet, but it's there. And you know, there's forums where you can learn how to make these things. And so I don't think it's as big a problem in the U.S. as it is in Canada. But that's what we're seeing is that, yeah, these airsoft pistols are being converted to fire 22 caliber rounds. And I know when I spoke about it in, in The Hague with Europol, they had never heard of this trend before. like Because different countries have different regulations on airsoft. And so they were quite interested. When I mentioned to them, I actually I'm working on a current investigation where, you know, these guys are converting these airsoft guns into functional firearms, you know, something to keep an eye out for. So I don't know whether that trend will, you know, follow through in the U.S., but it's certainly something up in Canada we're seeing. But uh, yeah, as long as, you know, if like does your son himself play airsoft or he just has the airsoft firearm? He just has the airsoft okay. firearm, shoots it for targets and, and whatnot. There you go. So. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I mean, you know, in Canada, airsoft guns are so widely available, they're not restricted yet. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it, it could be to other things. I My neighbor, the neighbor boy got for Christmas this gun. I couldn't figure out what it was, but it had, it was just a, it had a battery operated in it and it will just shoot. It's, he told me it's not an airsoft gun. It's some something a couple of levels down what it what it actually shoots. So the the BBs that come out of that oh, are a little okay, bit yeah, more yeah. more softer. And he told me, but I can't remember what it was. But again, with these toys, if they can get them so that they can weaponize them 
and make them accurate, there certainly is going to be this development, consistent improvement on this process because we just talked about some of the lengths that people will go to to avoid detection, right? And so oh, this is probably right. going to be a, a continuing trend that we see. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, uh, yeah, no, I mean, farms are going to be around forever. And, you know, the criminals are going to be creative and think of different ways to obtain them. Yeah. So in terms of our audience who are analysts, what message would you like to tell them in terms of weapons investigations? Okay, in terms of weapons investigations, I guess try and keep, you know, updated on, you know, what kind of firearms and weapons are showing up in your jurisdiction or, you know, ATF is a great resource. There is a website that the ATF have on information on firearms. So, yeah, when I think of weapons, I guess I, you know, because of my background and what I'm currently working on, I think of firearms itself and just keep abreast of what the current trends are. And like I said, ATF is, has a, is a good resource in terms of the laws that are currently in place and the type of firearms that are being being seized across the country and and throughout the world. And and I, actually another thing I would suggest is to network. You know, if you're working in illegal firearms, you know, you can reach out to myself or, you know, other analysts who are involved in, in firearms and just to share information and intelligence because I always believe, you know, that as an analyst, I think networking is such a valuable tool. And it, it's underutilized. And it's just a great example of networking being such a great resource for me is by being able to present in The Hague with uh, Europol and being able to attend their first 3D printed farms conference. And I've been able to learn lots just from networking. And granted, as you, you know, as I said, I'm a self-described gun nut. So it, <laughs> yeah. it is in my DNA to, to be familiar with firearms. But I'm not saying you have to be completely, you know, knowledgeable about firearms. Just, you know, be aware of the trends that are out there. Like, you know, there's stuff showing up on the news on terms of like these Glock auto sears. There's, you know, news items across you know, in, in different jurisdictions where these are being seized and, you know, 3D printed firearms, you just need to Google it and just see what the current trends are and just be aware. And the other thing, too, is that for those analysts who are working in law enforcement agencies around the world, drugs and guns go hand in hand. So and I've learned that, too. I said, you know, early in my career, I, I was working a lot of drug trafficking groups. Farms always involved because they need these firearms to protect their their property, their, their supply, you know, to take out other rivals. So I find that, you know, drug trafficking groups, you know, they will eventually, you know, it's a, just another commodity for them. So keep an eye out on those groups as well and anyone involved in, in drugs because, like I said, farms and drugs usually go hand in hand. So those would be kind of my advice is to, yeah, like I said, you know, keep abreast of anything that's happening, you know, farms related, network, try and identify you know, counterparts or even, you know, within your own law law enforcement agency, if you have a weapons expert or firearms expert, have a little chat with them and say, hey, you know, what can you tell me about, you know, what you're seeing type of thing, because that's going to go a long way. And like I said, you don't have to be, you know, no guns like the back of your hand, but if you're just aware of what what's going on within your area and outside of it, I think that will give you a step up. Yeah. And for the audience, we'll put... Winston's contact information in the show notes with all our guests. They're happy to receive messages and answer questions that you may have. So 
please feel free to reach out to Winston if you have questions or just want to network. Yeah, right. definitely. So our last segment of the show is Words to the World. And this is where I give the guests the last word. Winston, you can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? Let's see. My words to the world, and I've learned this throughout my career, is to network. And I know, you know, I always joke because, you know, the reason I became an analyst is I don't like working with people. <laughs> I prefer working <laughs> with data. But, you know, people are part of our industry. And, you know, I, I'm kind of an introvert. And I, like I said, that's pretty much why I got into the analytical world, because, I, you know, a lot of us analysts work with data mainly. But go out there and network because, you know what, like we come across so much information and we're not the expert on everything. And if you can reach out to somebody that will be able to give you that information at the drop of a hat and can expand your knowledge, you know, nowadays, you know, you can do it virtually. You can email somebody and say, hey, look, I came across, you know, your contact information. I'd like to discuss something with you or do you have any information? And again, it's been a game changer for me. So I just recently joined LinkedIn during COVID and it was one of those things. It's like, oh, you know what? Uh, I'm not being able to go to conferences or to meetings. I'm pretty much stuck at home. I'm going to start networking online. And so I joined LinkedIn and didn't realize the number of intelligence analysts on that platform. I was blown away. And just one by one, I started connecting with people. And it's such an underutilized tool. And it's something as analysts, I think it's something we really should work on doing more of. And, you know, now with, you know, things opening up a bit, you know, there'll be conferences and, and seminars. But like I said, you know, if you're sitting at your desk and, you know, you, you, you're able to get some contact information, just reach out to them. Because the thing is, is like when you like if down the road you're working in investigation, you're like, oh, I need some, you know, somebody in this part of the world or in this part of the country. Hey, I, I, I sent them an email and, you know, you send them one back and they'll they'll more than likely recognize your name and you can form that instant connection. So yeah, like I said, the main thing I, I would like to say to all the analysts out there is to network. Very good. Well, I leave every yes with you giving me just enough to talk bad about you later. <laughs> but I do appreciate you being on the show, yeah. Winston. Thank, Thank you. you so much and you be safe. You too, Jason. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye now. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.